Children's Church. We're in Matthew chapter 11. I'm reading verses 2 and 3, a message I have entitled, John's Uncertainty. Talking about John the Baptist this morning, John's Uncertainty. Stand with me, please, out of honor to God and His Word as I read. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Thank you. you. may be seated. Looking at John the Baptist's uncertainty. Now, so we are talking about John the Baptist. We're talking about Jesus today. And I heard this story. A man was going around his neighborhood claiming to be John the Baptist. He eventually was taken to a mental health facility. His roommate in the facility asked him why he was there. He replied, I am John the Baptist, and I was telling my neighborhood that Jesus sent me. His perplexed roommate looks at him and says, I don't remember sending you. Okay, that's the joke. <laughs> Let's look at John's uncertainty. First of all, the incarceration. The incarceration. John was imprisoned for his stand on holiness. The stand he took for holiness. Let me tell you the story. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod Antipas took his brother Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. Both he and Herodias were already married to others. And so John preached against this sinfulness. He spoke truth to power. Well, Herod wanted to kill John, as you might imagine. But Herod was afraid of the people who considered John to be a prophet. And so instead of killing him, Herod had John imprisoned instead. But I want you to know, as he was languishing there in prison, John was eventually killed for his stand he took on holiness for his stand he took on the word of God. For his stand on what he took he knew was right and what was true. He was eventually killed. And let me tell you that story. A girl by the name of Salome danced before Herod on his birthday. And Herod, because he was a little bit tipsy, he had had some, too much to drink, he offered her anything in the world she wanted. Where after consulting with her mother Herodias, she requested John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod complied and John died. So John was in prison for his stand on holiness, for his faith, and John was eventually killed for his stand on holiness, for his faith. Let me pause here and ask you a question. How firm are your convictions? You claim to be a Christian. How firm are your convictions? If you were put on trial for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You talk a good talk and you look good and you smell good and you sing good. Some of you sing good. But if you were put on trial for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you are guilty of being a Christian? And let me direct that a little bit more. Are you willing to die for your faith in Christ? Again, we talk a good talk. But when it comes down to it, renounce your faith in Christ or lose your head, where are you on that? How firm are your convictions? Are you willing to die for what you believe? And while we're on the subject, let me ask another question. Why does God allow his servants to be persecuted and killed? We have John the Baptist here. He's a good guy. Again, we're going to see this later. Jesus said, among women, there's no greater man has ever been born. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He took a stand for what was right, what was holy, what was godly. And yet he went to prison and he was killed. Why does God allow his servants to be persecuted and killed? Well, several reasons I want to give you. Number one, to remind all of us that this life is temporary. 
Nobody gets out of this life alive. Even Jesus, who was perfect, he died. Okay? Nobody lives forever in this life. And so when God's servants die, just like everybody else dies, we're reminded this life is temporary. Secondly, God allows it to deliver us early to our eternal reward. You see, John the Baptist probably had many, many more years to live. He was only six months older than Jesus. Jesus was only about 30 years old when, when he was crucified. So John had many, many. He was like halfway through his life maybe for that time period. And yet his life gets cut short. Why? Because God wanted to deliver him early to his eternal reward. A third reason why God allows his servants to suffer and die is to cause us who are left behind to question our own sincerity. I just asked you a minute ago, how sincere is your faith? Are you willing to die for your faith? When we see people who are killed for their faith in Christ or we read historical stories of how they were killed for their faith in Christ, that causes us to pause and say, I wonder, is my faith sincere? Would I really die for what I believe? A fourth reason God allows his people to be killed and persecuted is to inspire us to do the same if necessary. When you and I maybe one day will be faced with that. When maybe the government storms these doors and comes in and they say renounce your faith in Christ or lose your life, uh, we might get weak need, but because of all those who've gone before us, all those who've been martyred for the faith before us, we can say, you know what? They did it. I can do it for the glory of God. Because I want to tell you that even today, in 2022, people around the world are suffering for their faith in Christ. They are suffering financially. Others are suffering imprisonment. Yet others are suffering execution, all because they believe and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, I just read in the news, came out yesterday, I read it this morning. Down in Nicaragua, the government is not happy with the Catholic churches. And I know we're not Catholic, but they do fall under the Christian umbrella. And the government is coming in and arresting priests and throwing them in prison. Why? For their faith in Christ. So this is not something that just happened a very, very long time ago and we don't need to think about it. We don't need to worry about it. It's going on today. And need I remind you in the midst and the height of COVID and our own nation, churches were shut down. Pastors were arrested because they wanted to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see the incarceration. But secondly, I want us to look at the question. John is in prison, so he can't ask Jesus himself. So he has a couple of his disciples, a couple of his followers. He says, go find Jesus and ask him, are you the Christ or do we look for somebody else? Now keep in mind, this is the same John the Baptist who had already proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God. John was out there preaching and teaching and baptizing and Jesus walks by one day and John 1.29 tells us the next day John sees Jesus coming to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And not only that, this was the same John the Baptist who had baptized Jesus, who saw the Holy Spirit descend and heard the Father speak from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This same John the Baptist, again it's described for us here in Matthew 3.16, and Jesus when he was baptized went straight up out of the water and though the heavens were open to him, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, it goes on to say, and heard the Father speak from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is that same John the Baptist who's now in prison and he's sending people to ask Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? 
How could he be in doubt now? He already said, there's the Lamb of God. He baptized Jesus. He saw the Holy Spirit. He heard the voice. How can he now be saying, are you the one or do we wait for somebody else? A couple of things. First of all, John was Jesus' older cousin. I mentioned he was six months older. So John was Jesus' older cousin. And I don't know, think about it in your own life. How could your younger cousin be the Messiah? <laughs> I mean, just, you know, he's not as old as you. He's not experienced as you. He's not as wise as you. I have two older brothers that don't think I can do anything. Like whenever the three of us are together, they have to try to do everything for me because I'm their little brother and I don't know how to do anything. So how can your little cousin be the Messiah? So John's languishing in prison and he's starting to get these thoughts. Satan is putting those in there. Maybe he's not the Messiah. He's my little baby cousin. How could that be? But when you think about it, everybody famous is somebody's cousin, sibling, child, or spouse. Even Jesus had siblings and other cousins. But here's the real reason. John had some incorrect expectations for Messiah and his kingdom. John had some incorrect expectations for Messiah and his kingdom. In fact, listen to what John had preached about the Messiah. When he was still preaching, Messiah would come. This is back a few chapters in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Listen to what John is saying. And now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John said when this Messiah comes, he's going to wipe this place up in judgment. And John's not the only one that thought that. Everybody at that time expected a military Messiah. But what was Jesus doing? He was humbly teaching, healing, and serving others. He wasn't booting Rome out of the way. He wasn't chopping people's heads off. He wasn't setting up his throne in Jerusalem and ruling over uh, Israel. He's going around humbly teaching, healing, and serving. And not only that, but if Jesus really were the Messiah, what was John still doing in prison? One of the things the Bible says Messiah would do is set the captives free. Messiah would set the captives free, okay? Why wouldn't he set free his own cousin, his forerunner? If you're really the Messiah, Jesus, what am I doing rotting in jail? Look what Jesus said of John. Here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Excuse me, chapter 11 and verse 9. Jesus says, but what went you out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I say unto you more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? He said he's a prophet of God. And he's not just any prophet. He said he's more than a prophet. Secondly, he said he's the preparer for the Messiah. And thirdly, he said he's the prominent one among men. 
And yet here is this John the Baptist, a prophet, the preparer for Messiah, the prominent one among men. He's stuck in jail, and Messiah is supposed to set the captive free. Why? Well, John had unrealistic and incorrect expectations about the Messiah. But let me tell you this. John wasn't totally wrong. John was absolutely right. But John's timing was off. Because here's what I want to tell you. The Bible tells us Jesus will return as the Messiah that John and others were expecting. The Bible says when Jesus comes back, he will make war. When Jesus comes back, he will achieve victory. When Jesus comes back, he will reign securely. This is all true. It just wasn't to happen in John's day. And as of yet, it hasn't happened in our own day. But it will happen. Because God said it will happen. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. So we see, first of all, the incarceration. John was in prison for his stand on holiness. Secondly, we see the question. John sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus say, Hey, listen, are you the Christ, or do we wait for somebody else? Let's look thirdly at the explanation. Jesus says to report his miracles. Still in chapter 11, look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are uh, cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus says, Go report my miracles. The blind can see. By the way, the Old Testament said Messiah would give sight to the blind. He said the lame can walk. Again, the Old Testament says Messiah would cause the lame to walk. He says the lepers are cleansed. Well, the Bible didn't say anything about cleansing lepers. He says the deaf can hear. Again, the Bible, the Old Testament said that Messiah would give a hearing to the deaf. He said the dead are raised. Messiah wasn't reported to do that. So everything Messiah was supposed to do, heal the blind, heal the lame, heal the deaf, Jesus did. And in addition to that, he cleansed the lepers and raised the dead. Jesus did the works of Messiah And he exceeded them. He did even more than what he was expected to do. Jesus says, tell you what, report my miracles and report my message. The message is the poor hear the gospel. Now the poor were and are often overlooked. Politicians then and politicians now promise to help the poor, but they don't, they help themselves. President Johnson's war on poverty has been an abject failure. As of 2019, our country has spent $23 trillion on the war on poverty. And guess what? We have just as many poor or more than when he started. I'm embarrassed to say that that program began in 1965 when I was born. The war on poverty is as old as I am. And it hasn't done a lick of good for the poor. But Jesus was no respecter of persons. He didn't care if you were poor. He didn't care if you were rich. He didn't care if you were somewhere in between. No respecter of persons. He was going to preach to you. But Jesus also preached to the spiritually poor. Those who realize their sinfulness. Those who recognize their need for a Savior. But why didn't Jesus just give a straight answer? I mean, when John's disciples came and said, Hey, are you the Messiah or do we wait for somebody else? Why didn't Jesus say, Yes, I'm the Messiah or No, I'm not? Why didn't he give a straight answer? Well, if you know your Bible, you know Jesus often didn't. 
He let people figure things out themselves. And in this case, Jesus let his works speak for him. Go report my miracles. Go report my miracles. He let his works answer for him. Now, prophecy indicated that Messiah would do these works. Uh, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, if you look those up later, you will find out it says what Messiah would do. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Let me pause for a moment and ask you another pointed question, and that is this. Do your actions show that you're a Christian? Jesus was going to let his works answer for him. Rather than use his words... He was going to let his works answer for him. So what about you? Do your actions, do your works show that you're a Christian? You may be very vocal concerning your Christianity. You may go around everywhere and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I have a Bible. I go to church. But what do your actions say? For we all know that actions speak louder than words. Words are empty. Actions matter. Do your actions show? That you are the Christian you say you are. So what was Jesus doing by not answering directly, yes or no? He directed people to the scriptures as he often did. His point was, if you don't believe me, believe them. You don't believe me? You don't think I'm Messiah? That's okay. What do the scriptures say? He pointed people to the scriptures. Jesus was directing John the Baptist to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. John would know those scriptures. Jesus did the same thing while he was on the cross. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he shouted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, Jesus felt forsaken because he was. Because at that moment when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Your sins and mine were placed upon him. He became sin for us and God the Father could no longer look upon his sinful son. And so Jesus did feel forsaken because he was. But Jesus was doing something else. He was directing us to the scriptures. He was directing us to Psalm 22 and verse 1 which says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is Psalm 22 so important? Well, when you read it in its entirety, and when you learn the background of it, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Christ and a thousand years before crucifixion had even been invented. And yet when you read Psalm 22, it describes crucifixion in general and Jesus' crucifixion in particular. So what is Jesus doing on the cross? He is pointing people to the scriptures. What did Jesus do with John's disciples when they said, Are you the Christ, somebody else? He pointed John to the scriptures. Even the Apostle Paul directed people to the scriptures. I could show you many places. Just one, Romans 4, 3. Paul is making his argument, and then he stops and says, But what saith the scriptures? And then he backs up his argument with scripture. The point is, Paul says, I don't care if you agree with what I'm writing here. What do the scriptures say? Jesus pointed John to the scriptures. Jesus pointed all of us to the scriptures. Paul pointed us to the scriptures. And my friends, learn this lesson. We must always direct people to the scriptures. Our words are powerless. I don't care how good of a speaker you are, your words are powerless. And I might be the preacher here in this place. My words are powerless. But God's word is powerful. 
Our words are powerless. His word is powerful. In fact, look what his word says about itself. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. My friends, I have powerless words, but when I share with you this, it's powerful because it's the word of God. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says about the word of God. He says, first of all, it's living. Now, this book is not alive, obviously, but the words are. The writers of this book are no longer living, but the author is. This is a living message. It is a message of life. Jesus said that in John 6, 63. He says, my words are life. It's living. The word of God is powerful. It is active. I will tell you this right now. Reading this book will change your life. And God will use his word to generate faith in you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 10, 17, which says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you read the word of God, the more your faith will grow in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's word is living. It is powerful. And what does the word do? Well, notice what it says here. It pierces to the soul. It divides the spiritual from the non-spiritual. It discerns the contents of the human heart. And God uses his word for many things. The number one thing God uses his word for is to save the lost. For people, when they hear his word, will repent of their sins and receive Christ as Savior. When they hear that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, that Jesus was buried for their sins, and the third day Jesus rose again from the dead, they might not do it the first time they hear it. They might not do it the second time they hear it. But one of those times when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will humbly receive him as Savior, and they'll be eternally saved to the glory of God. But it won't be our words. Our words are powerless. It'll be God's word. And so God uses his word to save the lost. He uses his word to convict the sinner. He uses his word to encourage the saved. And he uses his word to instruct the saved. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word of God is living. It is powerful. And one more thing. It's sharp. Uh-oh, I'm getting lost here. It's sharp. The Bible tells it like it is. There's no sugarcoating in the Bible. The Bible penetrates deep into the very soul of man. Other books may penetrate your mind, but God's word goes beyond the mind to the soul. God's word opens the mind and bears the soul. And because the Bible is sharp, it cuts. But it doesn't cut to hurt us. It cuts to help us. Like the surgeon's scalpel. Nobody wants to go to surgery, but sometimes you have to go see a surgeon. And he pulls out that sharp knife and he cuts you. He doesn't want to hurt you. He cuts you because he wants to help you. And he has to pay for his Mercedes. But he wants to help you. And so he cuts you to help you. And God's word is the same. You read this thing. It's sharp. It'll cut you. It'll cut you deep inside. But not to hurt you, to help you, and to assure that you have eternal life. And so what did Jesus do with John? Directed him to the scriptures. 
What did Jesus do on the cross? Direct us to the scriptures. What did the apostle Paul do? Direct us to the scriptures. Our words are powerless. God's word is powerful. And so in conclusion, this morning I want you to evaluate your faith. I asked you in the beginning, how genuine is your faith? How firm are your convictions? Would you die for your faith in Christ? Evaluate your faith. John died for his convictions. He died for his faith. Are you willing to do the same? Or are you just playing church? you just dressing up and singing up and listening up, but leave and is it real? Evaluate your faith. And maybe I need to say, take a step back. Do you, are you even in the faith? Have you even taken that first step of receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Believing that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried for your sins, and rose again the third day for you. Have you taken the first step of faith? And then if you think you have, how real is your faith? Evaluate it. The second challenge is wait for the Savior. He's coming back. How do I know? God's word says so. He's coming back. And again, he's not coming back to die on a cross. He's not coming back to ride a donkey. He's not coming back uh, to be humble. He is coming back as King of kings, Lord of lords, and he is going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the entire earth. Be patient. Wait for the Savior. And thirdly, share God's word with the world. It's not our words. Remember, our words are powerless. God's word is powerful. So whatever means God gives you, share his word with the world. Your words could never change a person. Your words could never change a person's life. Your words could never change a person's eternity. But guess what? God's word can do all those things and more. So when you are out there sharing your faith in Christ, make sure you've either memorized or written down some scripture. Why? That's where the power is. It's not your arguments. It's not your debating technique. It's the word of God that will change somebody's life. Why? Our words are powerless. His word is powerful. So this morning we looked at the incarceration. John the Baptist was jailed. Why? Because he took a stand on what is right, on what is true. He took a stand for his faith. What about you? How genuine is your faith? Would you go to jail for your faith? Stormtroopers come in these doors right now. What are you going to do? You're going to die for what you believe? Because if you're willing to die for it, that's the real thing. Secondly, we looked at the question. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He's like, hey, are you the Messiah? I know I baptized you. I know I saw, I heard the voice. I know, I know, I know. But I'm not so sure now because you're not doing what I thought you were supposed to do. Remember, John was right. His timing was off. So far, by about 2,000 years, Jesus is coming back. He will rule and reign. He will come back as that military war-making Messiah just hasn't happened yet. And then thirdly, we looked, we looked at the, uh, I even forget what it was, the explanation. Why didn't Jesus just say, yes, I'm the Messiah? No, I'm not. He directed John to the scriptures. On the cross, he directed us to the scriptures. The apostle Paul directed us to the scriptures. Why? Why not just answer the question? 
because the power is in the word of God. And this is what we need to distribute. This is what we need to share. Because God, through his word, will change this world forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. And now it's time to respond to what we've heard, how we've been challenged. There may be some folks in here just playing church, playing Christian. But they realize if a gun were put to their head, they probably would say, no, I'm not really in. Give us all genuine faith for which we are willing to die. Father, there may be some who aren't in the faith yet. And they might say, well, if they're going to be putting a gun to my head, I don't think I want to be. But Lord, you have irresistible grace. And so be gracious to any lost that are in this room, any lost that are listening over the internet. Give them grace and faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Because this life is temporary, but eternity, well, it's forever. And so Father, bless this time of invitation. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.